Welcome to this episode of the RF Industry Icons podcast. I'm Pat Hindle, and today I'm talking with Sir Christopher Snowden, former Vice Chancellor of Surrey University and the University of Southampton, former President of the Universities UK, former CEO of Filtronic, and pioneer of the application of numerical physical device models to describe electron transport and microwave transistors. Welcome to the podcast, Sir Snowden. Thank you. Great to, great to speak with you. So you studied electronic and electrical engineering at the University of Leeds all the way through to your PhD. What was your dissertation covering microwave oscillators for radar applications and semiconductor modeling like, and how do you develop an interest for semiconductors? Well, it's quite a mouthful, as you say. So, um, well, there's actually two aspects to it. Originally, my project started with looking at using microwave uh, field effect transistors in, in oscillators. And at the time, uh, microwave FETs were still a relatively new thing. To give you a sense of that, I had, I had the grand total of five of these transistors to use in the whole of my PhD because they were so expensive. So I took great care of them. And of course, being early transistors, they also died, I'm afraid, very easily in the circuit. <laughs> yeah, you blew them. up a few, I'm sure. I did. But I was also fortunate because uh, Raycal MESL was a sponsor for me at that time. So I was able to do a project with industrial relevance, as well as doing my PhD at the same time. And you'll see a recurrent theme as we talk through this, that my whole career really has been an interchange between industry and academia. So looking at the microwave oscillator problem, the, I realized that this really was a, a really a problem at looking at the what I can best describe as the interaction between the transistor, the active device, and the circuit you want to wrap around it. And certainly at that time, that was a very good way of visualizing the problem. What that did was move you away from purely empirical uh, type uh, design and modeling to one looking at the, uh, certainly the electronics. And I pretty rapidly realized I needed to look at the physics of this too. Uh, bearing in mind, I didn't come from a, a physics background. I came from a, uh, you know, a solid electronic engineering background. And, I'm, and I've always looked on things with an electronics viewpoint, it's worth saying. Although I realized that I would have to go into the physics of this. I didn't, when I started it, realize just how far that would take me. And we'll, we'll say a little bit about that shortly. I started off looking at what other people were doing in modeling of uh, FETs, and in particular for nonlinear problems like oscillators, because oscillators are almost the ultimate nonlinear problem. They're a large signal problem, which most people uh, try to avoid, of course, because it is quite a challenging task. Um, but the problem I realized was that the transistors uh, were themselves very nonlinear. So I needed to think of the best way I could, the most fundamental way of approaching this, because otherwise I wasn't going to be able to get very good designs. And by that, I mean design for frequency and design for power output, which was virtually unheard of at the time, designing for power output. Most people regarded it as a success if it oscillated at all, close to the frequency hopes it would work at. Um, I'd seen a little bit of work done on um, modeling of MESFETs, that's metal epitaxial semiconductor field effect transistors. And I picked, looked at it and I thought, well, this could be really interesting. And it, as, a, as an intro for this, I realized that people have been modeling gun diodes, which had been previously used for microwave sources, using numerical modeling for a long time. 
And indeed, that's one of the only ways you can really um, design with gun diodes, because again, they're a very non-linear device. So I started off looking at what people had done for gun diodes and realized you could do something similar, probably for FETs. So I, I started looking at this and it's worth saying my supervisor at the time thought this was not a good direction to go in because it looked, it, it looked as though it would be a formidable task. And it was. Um, because you're dealing with quite sophisticated numerical methods for transistors. You know, three terminal devices are much more complicated than two terminal devices, for example. But I guess an, another thread for me is I've always enjoyed the challenges that come with things too. So we pursued that and I got it working. I, and we, we could talk for a long time about how I got there, but it was, it was a challenge and working often late into the night because in those days, computing power was, was relatively speaking to today feeble. So I was often to be found in the computing labs at uh, you know two in the morning, running these simulations to try and get the results. But it worked, and I managed to get start off by predicting the DC characteristics from from the clear physics of the device and its structure quite well. I mean, pretty accurately. Quite surprised me. And then I went on to look at how you could actually use a simple wrap round circuit with numerical algorithms. Uh, to interact with the device and it worked. I was able to predict uh, the oscillating frequency and the variation of, of power output and frequency with load, which is a very useful thing to be able to do. So I went on to design three or four oscillators, put it together with the uh, modeling work I described and I got my PhD for it. <laughs> well, you tackled a good problem then. It was so a good problem. So you worked at University of Leeds after receiving your PhD and became a professor in microwave engineering in 1992. What made you take mostly an academic path after your PhD? Well, it's a really good question. I didn't intend to, to start with. I originally worked for, uh, I had a, again, I was at the time unusual. I, I left after graduating with my first degree to work for a, a Mollard, which is today Phillips, and then um, decided that the, the key to success was to differentiate yourself. So. I decided to go and do a master's in microwave communications, which today we'd think nothing of that. But at the time, microwave communication was a very niche thing. Little did we know, of course, it would spawn not just the satellites, but mobile phone te technology, really. So I did that and then went on to do the PhD. And the reason I did in that order is that, to be quite honest, I, when I first went to work, and I said, well, is it, should I do a PhD? Mollard said, of course not. We, you don't need a PhD. Well, let me tell you, if you really want to succeed you have to differentiate yourself so you may not have to have a phd but in my view you do at least need a master's in the world we work in today so i left phillips went to do my master's and phd and actually at that time i was just writing up and a colleague at uh, leeds chris pinches said to said to me well there's a lectureship going at york university have you thought of being a lecturer and um, i said well no not really uh, but I was enjoying the research by then. I got the bug, if you like. And um, I enjoyed working with people. So I thought, well, I'll give it a go. And much to my surprise, I got offered the job. Ironically, because of the experience I'd had working in industry, they, they actually thought that was a very valuable thing because most academics at that time who were coming out of universities hadn't had that experience. So I got the job. I went to York. It, being, um, it was a new department of, of electronics at York. And at the time... They were relatively few staff in the department, so he heavy commitment of teaching, which I enjoyed, but little time and little funding for research. So Leeds persuaded me to migrate back, which was only, only a grand total of about 35 miles, um, 
to go and work with them again in Leeds and join um, what, the micro group I'd left recently after I graduated with my PhD. Um, I did it. You're absolutely right. I was enjoying working um, in academia. But again, the micro group at Leeds with people like Mike Howes and Vernon Morgan were very solidly based in the, in, the, in the real world, if you like, working with industry and internationally. And both those aspects I really enjoyed from the start. So we were working with quite a variety of all the usual companies you would expect to, to have on the list and doing great projects. So I enjoyed doing that. And that was really the start of that. And the micro group grew. It was quite a large group. We had uh, um, you know, 10 or 12 staff and at any time, 20 or 30 uh, graduate students, um, including the odd master's student there too. So it was really a very stimulating environment to work in. And so while you were there at Leeds, you founded the Institute of Microwave and Photonics. You know, what led you to create that institute and kind of what was its mission and work? Yeah, well, it's, it's actually another interesting um, story. The, I think that that particular time, which was in the um, early 90s, the era of small standalone research activities and individuals uh, was coming to an end, to be honest, because you needed scale of activity, scale of funding. And certainly in the UK, there was something called a research assessment exercise where all university research groups were being if you like, measured and evaluated. And it was very clear to me that, that I said, the era of the smaller groups was not going to succeed. So I not only formed the, the say, the, the Microbe and Photonics Institute, I formed another institute in the, the department at Leeds, uh, as well as another small, a smaller group with the view of having um, criticality of scale. Uh, so we had... So we attracted people from Cambridge and MIT to join us, which gives you a sense, I think, of, that this was a very attractive proposition. And I did it without extra money from the university. So this was done because people realised we could really get this, this buzzing. And it's still today extremely successful and leads in the last few research assessment exercises has been top in the UK in that area. So I think, if you like, the idea was proven out. And it was an exciting time. And so let's talk about some of your commercial experience. You worked at Mullard Applications Laboratory, Raycal, and Maycom. And yes. can you talk about some of those? And how the heck did you end yeah. up in Boston in my area? Yeah. Well, that's it. That's, yeah, that's very good. Well, um, as I explained, I'd worked for, for Mullard Application Labs to start with, which was a really good starting point. And um, you, know, you could do nearly anything you wanted in the laboratories. But I say I felt I needed to develop myself further, so I moved on. I, pretty, I was fortunate having the opportunity from Leeds, as I say, to work with companies. So I, my first um, international project was actually with General Electric at Syracuse, um, which I really enjoyed doing as well. And there, there we were delivering the software I was working on, modelling transistors to GE, who were working on government projects for the US government. I then um, uh, started working with uh, others, and, and at one point... I, w- I visited Maycom uh, and actually to help support a project which Filtronic, which we'll talk about later, was uh, getting involved in. And um, uh, they asked me if I wanted to stay and work on it there. Well, I, I was still you know, buzzing with a lot of other projects, so I said, and I didn't want to do that. But the senior vice president, a guy called Jerry DiPiazza, who is a legend in his own lunchtime, it's worth saying he's a fantastic <laughs> guy, said, well, would I let it come and work for him for a year then? And I said, yeah, okay, that sounded an exciting thing to do. So... I actually took leave of absence from Leeds, which, by the way, is a pretty unusual thing to do as an academic, the idea you go somewhere without being paid, and um, went to work for uh, Jerry 
um, in the Corporate Research and Development Group at MACOM, which was a very exciting time. Um, you know, PhD students from Leeds uh, went to join me there. And we, we, so we had a great time where, if you like, some of the people I'd worked with, and they, let me say, they weren't just Brits. These were guys from all over the people, like someone called Renato Pantoja, for example, from Brazil, joined me. And we had uh, a real, really exciting time. Jerry was at a, at a, a real powerhouse of energy, but keen to make sure that the group of us had the, the freedom to be able to really take the research to a new level. And we did. We, we did all sorts of things. We, we developed a new type of um, MESFET transistor, which uh, allowed you to actually design very high power amplifiers, highly reproducibly. So in other words, you could, you could boost the whole wafer effects and they all work the same. Again, that was unheard of. People used to bin half the transistors um, <laughs> because they didn't work properly. But we figured out how you could overcome that by designing the transistor for reproducibility. We also came at that time, the high electromobility transistor was just being introduced. And its main problem was that whilst it, it had fantastic noise figures, it didn't work at very high voltages. It, it used to break down around three or four volts. So their only use was in LNAs. Um, but I came up with a way of increasing the breakdown voltage at that time to 10 or 12 volts, which is a much more usable level. And so Macom moved into that. And it's worth saying they made both the MESFET and that HEMPT for about 25 years. So it was a very successful design of uh, device. And I enjoyed doing that a great deal. In fact, they at the end of the year, they offered me, if I wanted it, a permanent position. But I, as I say, I still have projects and things going in England. So... And they hired me as a, a consultant. And, I'm, and it's worth saying I spent about half my year anyway working with them in, in the Boston area and the rest of my time uh, working in Leeds. And it was a tremendous time because they helped um, fund projects we were doing in Leeds uh, for their benefit. And one of them, in fact, was, which we'll talk about in a minute, was an optical microwave integrated circuit, which I believe is possibly one of the first in the world at that time. And so I was able to do that for um, about another six or seven years, which was a very exciting way of working, getting the best of both industry and um, working in academia as well. So in 1998, you were appointed to the board of Filtronic as executive director of technology. Uh, then you were joint CEO at Filtronic. And as the company grew, you became CEO. How did that work? You know, how did you work your way into the CEO position and what was kind of your strategy in those days? Sure. Well, I joined uh, David Rhodes, who founded Phil, Philtronic. He was the chairman and at the time chief executive as well. And in the UK, uh, listed companies, because Philtronic by then was on, on the FTSE, were not, uh, they were in fact, desperately encouraged not to have the chairman and chief executive in the same person. So um, I didn't realize this, but da David had in his mind that I would become a CEO, but I joined as director of technology. And the reason, and I was very comfortable with that because that was something which I'd pretty much been doing, not you know, parts of that with Macom and other, and other, other groups. And um, so I was comfortable with that, but the reason I joined Filtronic um, was because um, they just acquired a semiconductor business in, in the USA and California, which used to belong to Varian. So it's something I knew a lot about, and I thought I can add value there. It's pretty hard for me to add value to the filter business, as David Rhodes is one of the gurus of filters in the world. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't 
attempt to do that. But I, they also had module businesses, which I did understand the module business too, because I, me, you know, as you got, I've been working with other companies as well around around the world to do this, including Hughes and, and uh, Marconi and people like that. So I felt I could offer something, and so I was comfortable with that. I started um, a global technology group because by then. Uh, Filtronic had acquired LK Electronics in Finland, which made uh, antennas for Nokia. Uh, they'd also acquired a defense business, the semiconductor business I mentioned, and also Sage, a US a business on the, still, you may be familiar with, a business on the East Coast as well. And I was also very comfortable with working uh, in other countries. So uh, I, I feel like I became the sort of international um, you know, sort of a coordinator, if I can put it that way, uh, for the corporate group in Filtronic. Um, about a year or so, maybe just after that, after I joined Filtronic, David approached me to become uh, CEO. Uh, but um, I wasn't sure I was quite ready to do that by then. So I actually uh, declined at that time. And uh, David did uh, persuade me in the end to take the post. So, so this meant David would step down from being chairman and chief executive and I became chief executive the challenge I had of course is that David's an enthusiast and and it's very hard when you founded a company to let go of all parts of it so uh, within a couple of years I think we both felt it would be better if I took the newer businesses and David had a focus on the on the if like the, the more established ones that he enjoyed most in other words the filter businesses and the defense businesses so I took the others including the new semiconductor business and by then, we'd acquired a facility from Fujitsu uh, in the northeast of England. And we were making, by 2005, we were making uh, a third of a billion gas chips a year there on six-inch wafers, wow. which was with, with really impressive yields. These were yields of over 95% on six-inch. So that was ex really exciting because of the things we were doing as well. And at that time, a good number of these chips were finding the ways of, as you would expect, into mobile phones and switch products and that type of thing. So I enjoyed doing that a great deal. And I was CEO of either the whole company or the uh, what was called ICS, Integrated Compound Semiconductors, for you know, six or seven years before I decided it was time to move on and do new things. Yeah, I actually remember that Maycom was somewhat involved in that chip factory. I think they were yeah. trying to acquire some capacity. Yeah, we, we were making um, switch designs for them as well, for RFMD, actually, at the time. Um, yeah, of course, themselves have moved on now. And um, I mean, that was a really exciting time because we were making everything from the switch designs, um, which you get a large number of those, I can tell you, on a six-inch wafer, through to really large power fets that were going into the first gas-based um, inf wireless infrastructure power amplifiers. And that was an exciting thing to do because extremely demanding reliability specs on that. But it also gave, if you put them into Doherty amplifiers, these gas effects were giving you uh, PAEs of 50 to 60% for uh, 3G, which at the time was quite an exciting uh, uh, target. So the first products were going out into the market at that time. So then later on, and you moved kind of back into academia in 2005 to 2015, you were president and vice chancellor of University of Surrey, uh, which obtained some very high rankings under your leadership. You know, what were some things you did to accomplish that? Sure, sure. Well, Surrey attracted me because it, it, of two things, really. 
It had a very strong reputation of working with business and industry. In fact, it had the highest employability of all universities in the UK. So 96% of its graduates had graduate jobs within six months of leaving, which is pretty impressive. Wow, yeah. So that impressed me to start with, and I was able to consolidate and build on that. Having said that, its rankings are not as high. It was in it was about uh, between you know 35 and 44 in the UK. But visiting it, I figured that um, it was a really good university to build on, and I felt that we could do some exciting things together. And I was actually encouraged by the the chairman of the council, Sir William Wells, to look at how I could use the experience I'd had in industry uh, to grow the business because I'd grown Filtronic the several fold and I figured that I could um, work with the university which in the UK is kind of a medium-sized university I would describe it as but in a good location near to London so it's a good good spot so we actually you know, put a put a, a firm strategy in place and I did I suppose what might be regarded as radical things at the time they had a, a strategy that was so thick you could have propped up table legs with it <laughs> and, I, and I used to ask people what they thought of the strategy and they said well I don't know but it must be good we've got one <laughs> and, uh, I, and and that's which is a common problem so I said well that's not any use at all if you can't tell me what the strategy is there's no point in having it so I came up with a strategy that had a total of 10 points in it and some of them were really simple points, you know, like, for example, um, I was one of the first people in the UK to saying it was really important to have a focus on the quality of the teaching and education we were giving students, which was a radical thing, because most people at that time were focused purely on the research universities saying, you know, it's all about research, you know, the students around, that's okay. And I said, no, it's, that's not enough. And, and one reason I believe this strongly was when I'd been a student, I felt that some of the lecturers were great, but many of them weren't. And, and I didn't really like that. I think really felt that um, we owed it to students, uh, irrespective of who was paying for the education, to offer the best quality we could. So we set about doing that, and we, we really started to improve the university on the back of that, because the research was already pretty good, actually, at, at Surrey. It just needed a little bit more of a push. The previous vice chancellor had been very keen on the research side of things and done, you know, got things going. And I was able to capitalise on that. I also managed to get the, get the agreement of the government and the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons to build only the eighth vet school in the whole of the UK and Ireland together. So we had we were able to introduce a, a new vet school as a new subject. We built um, the a whole institute for dealing with uh, what was going to be 5G and is now being used for 6G. And we, we attracted um, the best part of 100 and, um, about $120 million dollars of support from industry for that. So that, that we, so we know we'd really hit the button right there as well. And again, we were able to attract really good staff members to join us there. And we set what I think would have been seen as quite tough targets coming back to your point over how we were going to improve as a university. So by 2015, we'd reached number four in the UK. And in fact, our our, uh, what's called the National Student Survey results were higher than that. We were, we, we were third. And that, we won University of the Year that year, from, and which was a tremendous accolade, which coincided with me uh, making the decision to move uh, to Southampton. I think, and that's partly to do with, I believe that after, you've, after around 10 years, you really do need to think about moving on because I think you run the danger of becoming complacent yourself or the organization you're involved with 
can become complacent about about your leadership. So I moved on to Southampton for fresh challenges, really. But yeah, it was a really exciting time at Leeds. So yeah, I really enjoyed working with them. Fantastic team of people. Yeah, and you were so good at connecting industry and academia. And you kind of showed that when you did go to Southampton, you spearheaded the largest investment program in their history. You know, how did you accomplish that and get so much interest? Yeah, well, that's first thing. People question whether that would be doable because we went, we raised a, a 300 million pound bond and I got it to the lowest interest rate ever for any university. And this is a good example of how I was able to use everything I'd learned working in the corporate world, both here and in the US, because I knew I knew about raising bonds. I understood, you know, working with the financial community. So um, it, I had to do a little bit of work to persuade people this was the way to go. But compared to conventional debt, you know, having a bond, if you manage it well, can be a really good way to go. But I have to say the interest rate is obviously critical because you're going to pay it for a very long time and you have to have a clear plan. Well, the reason we raised it was because, like in the UK, the government doesn't pay for very much any longer in the way of capital funding for universities. So in other words, if you want your university to succeed, you've got to come up with some very clever ways of raising fun funding. Now, Southampton's a big university. Its turnover when I was there was just under £600 million, so quite a sizable uh, university. And it meant that we could also capitalise on having a very strong research position. With it. And we have things like an Oceanographic Institute and other aspects which were you know, truly world-class. And the background with areas, for example, in electronics and photonics, for example, the erbium-doped fibre amplifier, uh, one, of the, one of the originators of that that still works at Southampton, for example. So we had very strong players, which allowed me to take this out to the, to the investment world to make a case for funding this. And because I also knew that timing was critical when you're placing a bond, we were being advised by our advisor to go, to go out in a particular day. And I was watching where the market was going. And I said, no, no, not yet. And we waited actually <laughs> nearly another week it's it did you might think it didn't save as much we saved about 0.7 of, of a percent interest wow but that's 40 million over yeah. the life of the bond so it was a tremendous um result and then and also it meant that by raising enough money we were, we were smart we invested some of it so it will pay off the bond in due course without having to worry about the the terminal payment on it so Southampton now has a, a big war chest for building its new new campus, building new buildings, uh, which universities need to do to refresh themselves. And it puts them in a very strong position going forward. I was also obviously keen to continue supporting the research side. We did some philanthropic work. We, we raised £27 million for a new cancer immunology research institute, for example, which is, is a tremendous success. The, they, they've come up with some amazing uh, results from from the research from that institute already and on the teaching side again we set about raising the national student survey results and if you look at what's happened you'll see that Southampton significantly improved itself and that you, you have to appreciate in universities unlike companies the time scales are longer so it typically takes you four or five years to see the fruits of your labors in the universities so it's not a fast turnaround type activity even though Many of the governing bodies at universities would love to do these things instantly. I'm afraid you have to take the view that the students you took in in the first year have already got a view of how they are. So they, they will leave in three or four years time with either positive or a negative view. And you have to realize that you may or may not be able to influence. But if you 
if your new students coming into a really positive environment start with a positive view and they'll go through and hopefully leave with a very positive view. So you also pioneered a lot of cutting edge technology in our industry. Um, you did the application of numerical device models to describe electron transport and microwave transistors and by investigating device circuit interaction properties. And this allowed transistor designs to be significantly improved and optimized. You know, how are these models, I think you call them the quasi two-dimensional approach, how are they developed and incorporated into the CAD software at that time? Yeah, sure, sure. Well, back in, um, back in the 80s, I'd been working in full 2D and some 3D modeling, which was great, but very slow, because this occupied literally hours and hours of CPU time. And, um, and it also meant industry was reluctant to pick that sort of thing up because it was very expensive in terms of computer time for them. And, there was, and it's fair to say there was some skepticism about whether that could ever be a mainstream CAD uh, type application. But the advantage of it was that you could do predictive modeling with these numerical physical models. And you could actually predict how a transistor would work if you designed it literally from the wafer upwards. And I managed to prove that that was the case. And so companies like Maycom, obviously, because I was working with them, but Westinghouse, AT&T, they at the time were wowed by it because we moved from a situation where it was semi-empirical with a little bit of modeling to support it to being able to design these transistors and they worked just the way we'd set out to do it or if they didn't we could explain why because you always have to accept the unexpected in this game and uh, but I did realize that really the problem was speed so uh, we'd been doing some work at Leeds with uh, groups like the University of Lille and Alain Cappy and uh, also with um, Duisburg University in Germany. Uh, and we realized that a new, a new technique looking at um, essentially the fact that most FETs uh, are almost one dimensional. If you look at the scale of it, these transistors are a fraction of a micron thick. In fact, in some cases, nanometers thick in terms of the active channel. And the channel itself is microns long. In other words, the ratio, what's called the aspect ratio relating the gate length to the channel thickness is quite large. So that means you can start to make some approximations because roughly speaking, the potential lines will be parallel to each other. In other words, the electric field is largely one dimensional in the uh, channel of the transistor. And, and we came up with ways, by the way, to even tackle the people saying, oh, it's not all one dimensional, but we did come up with a way of solving that. But it meant that we came up with a model in the early nineties that was over a thousand times faster. Than, wow. uh, than the 2D ones. And we've done, we've carried this through today. We've got a gallium nitride model at the moment. It's a, again, about a thousand times faster than full 2D. But the real beauty of it was, it was staggeringly accurate. And, and it, I, I never believe you should take what people say, say not granted. So for example, we let the guys from Mitsubishi come over to uh, the UK and use it. And I ran into uh, Nori, one of the guys who'd been working at Mitsubishi at the time, in fact, when I was at the, at the European Microwave Integrated Circuit Conference recently. And they came around and they were wow, because they just put numbers in and boof, they got results incredibly close to what they were working on. And we, we again, we did a similar thing for AT&T and Westinghouse in, in the States and then for Hughes. And progressively across the, you know, if you like across the large companies around the world, able to show that this quasi 2D approach was really incredibly effective. And, and we produced a series of simulators, which 
didn't, we didn't give them away free, but if, you know, you know, supporting the university, we were happy to do that. And we, with, at Maycom, and more recently with other companies, I've helped develop simulators still using that principle. And an interesting thing is you can adapt this principle. So for example, we, we also adapted it for LDMOS, and that was used with, for example, Motorola originally for their fantastic LDMOS uh, transistors at the time. And we've gone on to use it in other types of uh, microwave transistor. Separately, by the way, I came with a, a similar fast version for an HPT even. It's, it's obviously a completely different, different topology, but you can use similar techniques. The key thing is it's a lot faster, but it doesn't throw away the, the crucial physics. So it allows you to, to do what-if experiments. You could try changing, for example, the, the ratio of the different elements in a GANFET, you know, in a gallium algan type, the, the different molarity in it. Or you can try changing the thicknesses or the dimensions and do all these what-if experiments and see how whether or not it improves your transistor. So you, you can do the things that you could do experimentally, but it would cost you a huge amount of money and time going around the loop. And we used this at Filtronic when I was there too for the semiconductors, and we produced some incredible power devices. At the time, we produced an X-band power mimic with over 100 watts of power output at 10 gigs in a mimic. I mean a single mimic, not wow. several of them, which even today is pretty impressive, I think, for a single mimic. We also came out where we're doing clever thermal modeling on it because one of the problems you have is combining thermal and electromagnetic models with physical model, any model actually, because then you're talking about a really quite complex type of thing to solve. And again, most people have put off that and would move back to equivalent circuit models or, or compact models of a different form. But you, you, you gain so much by looking at physical modeling that you're absolutely right that that became my sort of thing if i if people i'll probably have etched on my gravestone if you, <laughs> if this sort of semiconductor pun um, he's the quasi two-dimensional person <laughs> that was it yes exactly <laughs> i hope yeah. i'm a little more dimensional than that but you never know <laughs> <laughs> he really had three dimensions but he exactly. played in two so uh, you mentioned that you apply these models to PHEMS and LDMOS and even HBTs. I think you wrote a famous paper in 1997, you know, in relation to that. You know, what did you have to do or how did you extend the models to all these different types of semiconductors? Well, I think that's a good question because at first, for those familiar with looking at MESFETs, they're pretty simple channel-based. They've only got one channel and pretty simple to visualize. And as you move into LDMOS, which is also a bipolar device, of course, you may think that some simple approximations just lose the validity, but actually there are ways of solving it because again, most in most cases, the actual conduction currents are in the critical parts of the device are largely one dimensional. Or, and if they're not, there's, there's ways of accommodating that actually, which is what we do in even in the GANFETs today. So you can adapt it. Um, the trickiest one probably was the HBT, as you say, because it, and particularly at the time, they, these devices are really quite complex in terms of the way they operate. Anyone familiar with bipolar transistors will know what I'm talking about. These are way much more complex because you've got to be able to take care of the bipolar processes in them. And, but in all cases, one of the interesting aspects is you can start to tackle things like breakdown modeling, effects like that, which are really important. And it means in all these transistors, you can do things like predict, predict third order intermodulation or even power compression, again, with quite a high degree of accuracy. 
And in the, in the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, understanding compression in power amplifiers was really important before the before Doherty's, for example, became established. So that these models really helped contribute to understanding that at the time. So you also seem like you were able to combine microwave and photonics technology together. You know, how are they alike in a way that you're able to bring them together? And I think you did some work on that at Maycom and the Institute. Yeah, that's right. Um, the, well, it was, again, actually, this is coming back to um, Jerry DiPiazza, who, who was the senior vice president of Maycom. Jerry, um, you know, they were working on something called a glass microwave integrated circuit at the time. You may remember, Pat. Yeah, GMIC. Uh, yeah. GMIC, that's right. And this was using glass as a substrate and then essentially dropping the chips into the glass and having interconnects on the glass. So it's actually quite a clever way of producing, if you like, an integrated technology with a well-defined substrate, the glass. So quite attractive. And you, you could work on this up to W band without any problem. Well, at the time, um, they'd been working with AT&T looking at some of the opto chips as well. The problem was there was no integrating medium. So you had to come out of a chip, go into optical fiber and do all the great stuff there. And I was looking at it thinking, well, you've got glass here. So why couldn't you make some literally glass guides? So we started by obviously making glass guides as well as the microwave guides. Um, and they worked pretty well. Um, they, they, weren't, they weren't what you describe as long distance types of interconnect, but they were fine over even a few centimeters actually. So we put together a an opto transceiver based on some of the dye from um, AT&T with um, a microwave dye um, and with the optical interconnects in it. And it worked really well. And so uh, this was picked up by one of the nascent divisions of Macom sort of opto world. And it's fair to say that I don't think um, either GMIC or opto GMIC went as far as it could have done, uh, but at the time, the, uh, both the optical and microwave world uh, were going through a huge amount of upheaval in terms of the business side of businesses. So I don't think it went as far as it could do. Although um, it's interesting to me that people like Intel and others have looked at very similar technologies nowadays uh, for interconnects um, for a digital type application. It's just the same ideas, in fact. Yeah, I'm surprised that didn't uh, eventually you know, morph into something today that would be usable. Yeah, well, I think it could still be picked up. I think it wasn't it wasn't an issue of performance, it's worth saying. I think the performance actually was very good. In fact, you might argue it was almost beyond better than you needed. Uh, that's why I think the people of today are looking at silicon guides, for example, on wafer. Uh, although, ironically, they're, they're loss, much lossier than the glass guides were. And I guess the answer, simple answer is that glass micro-integrated certain technology was a relatively new technology with very few companies bought into it. Sumitomo and others did, for example, but not, not, uh, not worldwide. And that's probably the problem. I learned long ago that it's extremely hard to displace incumbent technologies. <laughs> you know, the, when, we, when we were at Filtronic, we made some absolutely world-class, world-beating modules and products. But the, the business at the time was happy buying less performing ones, but ones that were established so that... You've got to really, it's not just about having the best technology. You've got to have the best way of exploiting a technology if you want it to stick. So, you know, that's, that's the essence of it. I think, you know, you might say, well, how come LDMOS is around so long when you've got all these other great, for example, silicon carbide based 
GANFETs? And the answer is because it's established and everybody knows what to expect from it. They work with it solidly um, and it's pretty reasonable in pricing usually too. Yeah. So you also have written many, many books. Um, can you tell us maybe about one or two of those or which one is your favorite? Yeah, sure. The, well, yeah, this, this wasn't initially an intended, I didn't intend to set write, to write so many books, but I guess these things happen. I, I wrote a, an article um, for the Institute of Physics for what was quite a prestigious journal called Reports and Progress in Physics on Semiconductor Device Modeling back in the early 80s. And um, I didn't realize it, but this was, this was really well received and people were very interested in it because semiconductor device modeling to that time had not been very well understood. And I described both equivalent circuit modeling and physical modeling. So it was something which people were interested in. And I was approached by World Scientific to write a, a book called Introduction to Semiconductor Device Modeling, which I'll quick plug, and which believe it or not still sells today. And this was, I wrote that, or it's published in 1986. And um, it still sells today. And I often wonder why. And I think the answer is because it pulled together a lot of ideas, which before simply hadn't been available anywhere else. It was a really good book by Siegfried Selberher, published at a similar time, focusing principally on um, silicon technologies. So he'd focused on the, if you like, the numerics of it, and I'd focused on the application of numerics to actual models and how you could put the models together and the things you needed to look out for. And also things like hot electron modeling, which people were beginning to realize that high energy electrons in these microwave devices really changed the way the, the device works. So you had to understand them. So I guess that first book, Introduction to Semiconductor Device Modeling, would still be my favorite because it sells so well. But I've done other ones that I'm proud of too. I, I did one with a colleague's including Siegfried, actually, uh, called Compound Semiconductor Device Modeling, which we did with um, Spring of Erlag. And that was, and again, another very popular book, which I think is still, still available as well. It just amazes me that these books are still available, by the way, but there you go. <laughs> That's what they call a um, classic. Well, yes, I never thought of it that way, but I, I guess so. Yeah, I still get the odd check, which is always nice as well. Um, by the way, if anyone thinking of writing, don't do it. It's never worth it for the money. <laughs> <laughs> it is a lot of work. It's a terrible oh, it's, amount of work. You're absolutely right. You know, I've many, many nights spent writing these. Um, so I've done that and I've, you know, I've, I've published with Wiley and others as well. It's often asked why wouldn't, why wouldn't I do a second edition? But, but like many authors who do technical books, I kind of put what I wanted into that book, you know, and, and, it, and it hasn't changed a lot. So why would you do a second edition? You know, it's, so I've not been drawn in, I've not been drawn in enough to want to do that yet with <laughs> any of my books, but um and then maybe I'll write another one sometime, but they are, they are a lot of work. And that's the thing. If you're going to write a good book, you need to understand that, I think. Yeah. So I have to ask, you were knighted in 2012 at the New Year Honors for Services to Engineering and Higher Education. What was it like being knighted? I just, I don't know anybody who is one, so I have to ask. Well, well thank you. Well, well, it, well amazing, really. Um, I'll be honest, I, I came out of the blue. In fact, I got this brown envelope when I came home from work. Um, one day and I've been at a long day and it had on a majesty's service on the front of, well it's a tax demand here in the UK <laughs> our tax demands have on a majesty's services here on the front you're ready to tear it up so well not quite but close <laughs> anyway I opened it and the, it said um, you know my name had been put forward uh, to become a knight and if I'd be pleased to accept it just let them know well I thought wow that's that's incredible and um, you know and I, I was genuinely surprised I 
I guess more than anything, I was I was humbled and surprised that, that people had put me forward for it. I thought it was very, very kind to do that. And and it, equally, because I'd been knighted for both service to engineering and higher education, so I guess that even like the engineering community and the higher education community had, had done this for me. So it was amazing. That's the first thing. And, and I was fortunate the Queen knighted me, yes, with her sword, so, <laughs> and at uh, Windsor Castle. And it was an amazing experience. And I, I'm, I'm genuinely honoured, really honoured and humble that 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 was the case. And, and um, it, yeah, there's, there's some, I'm still amazed by it, actually. So, yeah, thank you. Well, it just shows how much you touched everybody's lives in both areas, education and industry. It's been, a, it really has been an exci- incredibly exciting career for me. And I'm still doing this stuff, you know. <laughs> you still have a ways to go, yep. I, I've got this theory, see, micro-engineers don't really ever disappear and die. They're just the kind of, um, you know, radiating stuff. So I'm, still, <laughs> I'm still doing, um, well, hopefully good stuff, I think, and, and continue to do that. I enjoy doing it. Excellent. Well, thank you, Sir Snowden, for talking with me today about your career experiences in the industry. You are truly an RF industry icon with your pioneering work in device modeling and your industry contributions and your academic and research leadership. To our audience, you can find more podcasts at podcast.microwavejournal.com. Thanks for listening.